Uh, my name is Sean Sears, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Church. We're in the uh, fourth week of a series called The Blessed Life. And the idea behind this series is not that uh, Jesus is the lever that you pull so that you get more quote-unquote blessings, however you measure what those blessings are. I know that there are popular uh, pastors and preachers on, on you know, the Christian TV channels that talk about sowing a seed, that if you give this money, then God will make you rich and he'll give you more money and you can't outgive God. So give more money and give more money and, and so you can get more money and you can get more money. And, and, and sometimes they'll, they'll preach that, that the evidence that God is blessing you is that you don't have any problems and that your, your wife comes back. It's like the opposite of a country song. When you play the country song backwards, that's, the, that's, that's proof that, that, that you are living a blessed life. The only problem with that is that it's not biblical, right? Like, like those who are devoted followers of Jesus, the disciples, they were martyred. So if the proof of, of you being in the center of God's will is health, wealth, prosperity, right? If, if that's the proof, then none of those guys were blessed by God. Biblically, the blessed life is the intersection of all of your natural gifts, abilities, and unique experiences, like it's the intersection of those things with God's intended purpose for your life. That's, that's where the, it's the sweet spot. That's what the blessed life is. You and I both know people who have more money than you who are more miserable than you, right? Like we know people who have more stuff who enjoy life less. So we, we know this. I don't know why we keep thinking that if we, if we could just hit the mega millions, we'd be happy. Although, I'd be okay hitting the mega millions, and I would be happy. <laughs> but we keep chasing more and more and more and more, and truthfully, sometimes we walk farther and farther and farther and farther away from the person God always intended us to be. And, and I, think, I think the opposite of the blessed life would be to get to my deathbed and have nothing but regrets and do-over wishes, Right? I think the blessed life, the evidence of a blessed life has nothing to do with the amount of money I have in my bank account. It's when I get to the end of my life, I'm surrounded by those I love and who love me, who are there when I breathe my last breath. And in the very next moment, it's Jesus walking up to me and grabbing me by the sides of my head and going, how was that? Right? Was that awesome or what? Right? That's, that's. That's the trophy. I want to get to the end. I want to enter eternity with no gas left in the tank, right? Like I, I want, like whatever awesomeness God is trying to squeeze out of my life, I don't want a single drop left in the sponge. I want to be completely wrung out. I want God to say to me, Sean, I got every awesome thing out of you that I was looking to get out of you. Was that an incredible ride or what? Right? Enter into the joy of your reward for living a life fully leveraged for my glory and for the good of others. Your joy is now full. Like that's, that's, that's the blessed life. And that's why Jesus said there's so few who find it. He says wide is the road and wide, that leads to the wide gate that leads to destruction. And it's wide because the number of people who are on that road. But narrow is the gate that leads to life. And few there be who find it. So Jesus himself said that it would be a far, far, like, like a, a, a huge minority who will actually get to live this kind of life. Not because they didn't have access to it, but because they didn't choose it. And there is nobody in the entire Bible that I can think of 
who is a better example of what it looks like to live the kind of life that is blessed by God than Abraham. Abraham was that guy that God did a whole lot in so that he could do a whole lot through. And then he said, and all the nations of the world will be blessed by you. Like I, I think that would be awesome. I mean, truthfully, your best plan for your life only affects your downline. That's it. Like, come up with, like, if, like, all of your wishes came true, right? Napoleon Dynamite became president, or Pedro became, like, sorry, that's an old school Napoleon Dynamite reference that four people are going to get. But, like, if, if all of your wishes came true, if God gave you a magic wand, if you found the genie in the lamp, and, and all your wishes came true, the best you got is a hookup for your kids and your grandkids. And maybe the, the next generation would get a little bit of it, but at some point it'd be dispersed. And three generations from now, no one's going to remember your first name. I don't care how awesome you are. Now, you might be the kind of person who gets a hotel wing named, a hotel, excuse me, a hospital wing named after you, but we walk in hospital buildings all the time that are named after people that we don't give a rat's butt about. Am I right? Yes or no? The only people that matters to are the people who paid to have their name put on it. That's just true. Nobody else cares. But God's plan for your life doesn't just change your downline. It changes all of eternity for dozens, dozens, maybe hundreds, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of people for all of eternity. God's plan for your life is a thousand years into eternity. Some kid in Uruguay, right, finally comes up and finds you after a thousand years in eternity and gives you a high five. And you say, what's that for? You helped my pastor start another church in the village that I lived in that didn't have one until you came. And if it hadn't been for you, I would have never found faith in Jesus. This is my wife who found faith in Jesus. This is my sons who were raised to know and to follow Jesus. God's plan for you changes forever. Yours just changes your kids and your grandkids. That's all you got. I'm telling you, God intended you from more than just that. So what can we learn from the life of Abraham that will help each one of us live that life? Because dang it, that's the kind of life I want to live. If I can position myself to get into the kind of place in my life where God can draw out of me as much awesomeness as possible, then dang it, that's where I want to be for the rest of my life. And I don't want to leave that spot. So in the first week, we talked about God's first call to Abraham, which was first he had to choose, follow me. Go to a land that I will show you. So he had to choose right then whether or not he was going to be defined by the road he was walking or whether or not he would be defined by the God who was calling, right? He had to make that choice. In the second week, we talked about how um, God had called him to trust him. And, and we said that you can fool yourself and I can fool myself by saying, oh, I'm a follower of God and I trust God until we get to the teaching last week where God said, I want you to prioritize me because the truth is that the proof is in the pudding, right? Like it, you, can, you, can, like you, you, can, you can fool yourself that you're following Jesus. You can, you can fool yourself that you're, you're trusting God, but there's, you, you can't get around whether or not you're prioritizing God because there's, there's proof for that. All you got to do is look at what you spend on your, your money first on every week when you get your paycheck. And if God's getting leftovers, he knows he's not your priority. If you pay your mortgage before you, before you, before you honor God, will you worship God with your resources? God knows what's most important to you. Like he, he, if you can't forgive the people who've hurt you when you've forgiven, when God's forgiven you for unforgivable things, like there's proof 
The proof is the fact that you're still bitter. The proof is the fact that you won't love people who are unlovely. The proof is you won't rearrange your finances to put God first. So, I mean, like, there's, there's concrete evidence on whether or not you're, you're prioritizing. And in this week, God leans in a little bit more on that prioritizing thing, and he begins pushing in some really uncomfortable ways, for me at least, and that's where we're going to be looking today in Genesis chapter 22. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to go to Genesis chapter 22, and I'm going to start reading uh, in verse 1, where it says, uh, sometime later, Genesis chapter 2, 22, verse 1, sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. All, all of these tests, oh my word, God, what does this kid have to do, right? Like there's been, like this, Abraham's story started in Genesis chapter 12. We're in chapter 22 now, and God is still testing him. Here's, here's the reason why, because God wasn't just interested in taking him somewhere, God was more interested in making him someone, Right? God was still trying to shape him. He wasn't just trying to take him somewhere. He wanted to shape him into being a different kind of person. God is wanting to draw out of him because he knew he had a whole other gear in him. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, I don't know if you've ever coached or not, but you've had some phenomenal athletes who are still coasting on the court. You know what I mean? Like, they still weren't hustling. Like, they don't play, they don't play any D. Are you with me? And I would have said that about LeBron until the past month. That dude's had some, like, sick, nasty blocks. Homeboy's been playing defense like a madman since he got to L.A. I still hate him because of the decision, but I'm just saying. You, and that has, so I brought up LeBron in church. I don't know, he, he, probably has, he probably would laugh if he knew somebody brought him up in a church service. The point I'm trying to make is that there are some athletes that you know can compete at a higher level. If you're a coach, and I don't know how many of you guys have ever been a coach before, but there are those kids that you will pull aside and you will lean in on them more than you will other kids because you know they've got a whole nother gear in them. Like they actually could get to a different level. Some of you guys are like that academically. You don't have to study at all to get B's. Now, if you study, you could get A's. Right? You could get A's all the time. You know you could get A's all the time, but you don't have to study, and you're already getting A's and B's, right? Like, I was that kind of a student. I was an A and B student, and I didn't have to study at all. I went to college, and I didn't have to study, and I got B's and C's. My wife ended up valedictorian or, or summa gradu- graduating a magna cum laude of her college class, but she, she'll tell you that she was a natural C student who was an overachiever. I was a natural A student who was an, who was an an underachiever. And if anybody had known that in my life, what they would have done is they would have leaned in on me with my B's. And while B's might have been acceptable to, this sounds horrible. I'm sorry if this sounds bad, but I just want to put this in context so you can wrap your head around it. Some of you guys, how many guys would say that I could have gotten better grades? Raise your hand. Okay, you guys, all right, that's, all right. So however many that is, wherever you're at, I mean, like we, like we, if, if you, if, and it'd be like somebody seeing that in you and then just leaning in a little bit more. I mean, you're passing. You're keeping it above a 2.0 so that you can stay in the marching band, so that you can stay on the soccer team or the field hockey team or basketball team, like whatever it is you're involved in, your extracurricular activities, you got to give a, stay above a 2.0. And, and so like nobody's bothering you because you're getting a, two, a 2.0. But you and I both know that if there was somebody who took a personal interest in you and leaned in on that, you could get a whole nother academic gear. That's the way Abraham was. So God tests him again. Why? 
because he's got a whole nother gear in him. And God wants him to hit that. And the truth is, I think most of us are probably living beneath our capacity. And if God loves you, and I believe he does, he's going to lean in on you. Not because you're a bad person. Not because there's all these huge changes that you got to make. But the reason why he's going to lean in on you to love more, give more, serve more, is because he knows there's a whole nother gear in you. So that's what he does in Genesis chapter 12. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. He said, Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Which in this, this Hebrew word, here I am, doesn't just mean, hey, I'm over here. Hey, you can stop looking, I'm over here. When they would say, here I am, Samuel, the guy who anointed King David as, as, as the king, um, Samuel had said, here I am, Lord. It's that same Hebrew phrase that means, I am yours to command. I am 100% available to you for whatever you're about to say. That's what this phrase means. And I love that because every time God calls out to Abraham, he asks him to do something crazy scary. And truthfully, when God leaned in on him again and said, Abraham, he could have said, what now? Holy cow, like what am I not? Have I not already been obedient? Like he could have said that, but that's not what he says at all. Because when God comes back to him again, his first response is, I am one." 100% available to you. Whatever you ask, the answer is yes. That's, that's what God knew about Abram. That's what he knew about him. That's what I want God to know about me. I want God to be able to think, like, who could I do something with? I want him to go, I'm going to pick Sean. You know why? Because Sean always says yes. That's what I want. I want to give God a blank check because I know he'll never write on an amount larger than what I can cash. You know what I'm saying? I want God to like go, there's, there's one kid who's always available to do anything I put in his heart to do. That's the kid I'm going to tap. I want him tapping me right on the shoulder. I, I want to be this guy. That's who I want to be. Back at it, verse 2. Take your son, your only son. Yes, Isaac, whom you love so much. <laughs> I love the familiarity of that wording. He doesn't say, hey, take your son Isaac, and then just keep right on going. Because God knows that this request is big. God's busting out the big guns now. And he's leaning in on him harder than God's ever leaned on him before. He's, he's about to push way in to his sense of identity, his sense of security, his, his future hopes and dreams. Isaac represents all of those things. God had promised Abraham and Sarah that they would have a child. He promised that to them when they were 75. He doesn't answer that request until, until he was 75, she was 65. He doesn't answer that request until they're 190. And we're going to find out in a minute that, 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 that their son is like a preteen. So now he's like, he's like, like what, that, that World War II vet just died this past week, 108 years old. No, he, he's like 110, 113 at this point. Like, like Abram is like, like he's a stud, but man, the guy's like on his, on his last leg. He doesn't have any other kid in him. And Sarah definitely ain't going to be going through childbirth again. 
I mean, even if God said, there's another kid in you, I think Sarah would go, I'm out, I'm out. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm 103, I'm checking out. Like, I'm not, I'm just not gonna do. Like I, so Isaac represents everything to him. His whole identity is wrapped up because God had promised him in Genesis chapter, 20, uh, chapter 12 that through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed and your descendants will be like the sands on the shore or the stars in the sky. And he knows that that promise is coming to him through this one person, his son, his only son, Isaac. So God says to him, Abraham, and he says, yes, here I am. And God says, take your son. What? Yeah, your son. But, but God, anything. I'll take my life, don't, but don't, like, not him. Your only son, Isaac. The one you love more than anything. Holy cow, like this just got, this is a whole nother level of, of, of generosity, of sacrifice, of obedience. Like, this is just like a whole nother level of faith. And truthfully, I get to this part in the story, and I go, if that's what it's going to take for God to make me that guy, <laughs> I might be okay with B's and C's. Right? Here's what he says. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah, go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. How in the world does this even make any sense? Now, God wasn't asking him to murder his son. So before you start to think that, some people have a problem with the Bible. And they'll bring up this passage that God called Abraham to kill his son and how horrible that was. And it wasn't about Abraham killing his son. If it was about killing his son, he could have taken out a knife and stabbed him right there in the tent. It wasn't about that. It wasn't, it wasn't about murdering the son. But what God had demonstrated with Adam and Eve and every succeeding generation who was a follower of God by faith, they knew that the firstborn belonged to the Lord. The reason why Abel's offering was accepted and not Cain's is that when Abel had his first pair of sheep and they had their first ewe lamb, he sacrificed that one to God, not knowing if they would ever give any more sheep. He gave the firstborn, the first fruits, right off the top, the very first thing he ever got, he gave to God. That's why Abel's offering was, was acceptable to God. Cain waited until the entire harvest came in, and then he decided how much of that he could spare. And that's why Cain's offering was not accepted. So those who were followers of God by faith, the Bible says, and this became codified in the Torah, in the, in the five books that, the, of, of law that Moses wrote is that the firstborn of every living thing belonged to, to God. But God did not want them to kill their children, so what they had to do is they had to redeem the life of their child. So what they would do is they would bring their child to the temple or to the tabernacle, is what they would do with a lamb. And what they would do is, is they would take this lamb and let the lamb, the spotless lamb, be a substitute payment for the life of the firstborn. So Abraham knew this. I mean, he was a descendant. Like, he'd, this information had been passed. And so what God was asking him was, is the firstborn belongs to me. He's mine. Isaac belongs to me. 
And I want you to sacrifice. So what this was, was Abraham deciding whether or not he trusted God enough to obey God with what was most, most important, most important to him. What if God was asking you to do that? Here's what I want you to do. I want everybody, if you would, please. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes in just a second. You're going to close your eyes. And with your two hands uh, in, in your lap, what I want you to do is I want you to imagine hanging on to the thing that your entire identity is wrapped up in. I don't know what that would be. Maybe it's, maybe honestly, like, like what's the one thing you could never part with? For some of you, it, 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 it might be a loved one. Or for others of you, it would be your education. Or it would be your reputation. Or it would be your money. It would be, it would be what? It, it, it would be your family. Uh, it would be your, your job, your security, like, like your citizenship, uh, your, your path towards citizenship, your, your green card. Like, I don't know what is the most important thing to you, but what I want you to do is I want you to close your eyes. I want everybody to close your eyes. And I want you to hold this in your hand. What is the one thing that identify, like, like your identity is wrapped up in? What is that? And I want you to squeeze your fists as tight as you love that thing. And then imagine God saying, and I want you to give that to me. How difficult would that be? We're going to come back to this in just a minute, but you can open up your eyes. That, like, that, that would be difficult. This is it. Like, that, there's nothing else in the world that defines who I am more than this. My entire security, my, my, my identity, the way that I see myself is through this lens. I don't know who I would be without that. Right? That was Isaac to Abraham. And God said, this is what I want you to do. And I want you to go to a land that I will show you. This is only the second time God's ever said that. The first time God said that to him was in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. And for the sake of time, we're not going to look up that verse. But Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, God tells him to leave Ur of the Chaldees with his wife. And he says, and go to a land that I will show you. And in that moment, he had to decide whether or not he trusted God enough to obey God with the rest of his life. And his entire life changed as a result of the choice he was about to make. This is only the second time God's ever used that phrase. But again, everything in his entire life is going to change if he does or it stays the same if he doesn't. It's the exact same phrase. Look at the next verse. The next verse. Uh, the next morning. Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and he took two of his servants with him along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. I, I respect the heck out of that. Because if God had said, pull this trigger, he could have pulled the trigger and it would have been over. He could have said, jump off this cliff and he could have just jumped the cliff and it would have been, it would have been over. The moment it had passed, he had the courage, he jumped, he let go of the, like in, uh, I, 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 my oldest two were born when my wife and I lived in Denver and on the west side of Denver is a town called Lakewood. On the west side of Lakewood is the front range and just over the first line of hills is a little town called Morrison and there's a, a creek there that, fear, that, that, that uh, uh, feeds the Coors Brewery, and uh, uh, you, there's, there's some waterfall places, and in some places it, it gets as narrow as just like six or eight feet, 
and, and those places the water picks up speed. And when it goes over some boulders into an area, the water over however many years begins to dig out like a little pool there with all the water coming over and it makes that part really deep. So the water could be just, you know, 10 or 14 inches throughout the rest of the creek. But just on the other side of those like little piles of rocks, the water can be 10 feet deep. It's, it's crazy. Um, and then there's, you, can, you can climb up a cliff there in this one particular cliff. And I had just moved there from Florida. So I'm, I'm not a mountain guy. I'm a beach guy, right? Like everything's flat in Florida. And, and uh, my friend said, hey, let's go, let's go cliff jumping. And I said, hey, that sounds dumb. Sure, I'm in. So we went to Morrison and we, we, we swam across that little part and we start hiking up. And, and it, the hike up was the worst part. It really was. Because when I was standing there next to the pool, I was like, are you guys sure that that's deep? I mean, like, like are you sure? And I see one guy go off, and then he, he, he came back up. He didn't die. So I'm like, all right, maybe it is, right? And then I see another guy, and, and it takes like 15 minutes to climb to the top of that cliff. And the entire time you're climbing, you're having this internal argument with yourself that this is really stupid and you shouldn't do it. Now, if I could just like run up there and then just jump off, I think it would have been an easier thing for me to do. But the fact that I had so much time to think about what I had to do made it incredibly more difficult. Does that make sense? Abraham had a three-day march. And don't tell me he wasn't arguing with himself the entire way there. Should I really do this? Like, what does God mean by that? Like, is I, like, like what is he, like, for three days? And he had to chop wood. And he had to saddle the donkey with it, and he had to pile the wood. Like, there was all kinds of work he had to do before he could, like, get ready to even, like, it, it wasn't this thing where, like, like, just, like, step out into the sunshine and you're there. It wasn't like that at all. Like, there was, like, a process, like, work he had to put in. Things, he had a million chances to back out is the point I'm trying to make. A million chances. You know, every time he came around another corner, and he was looking off in the distance, and God said, that's not the mountain. He goes around another corner. That's not the, I don't even know if I should be doing that. I should just go back. I could have done it on a mountain back there. God, I don't understand why I got to go to this mountain. Right? I mean, like, just that internal argument he must have been having with himself on, on the way there. The, the, the fact that he doesn't back out. He's three days in, and he's still moving. I respect the heck out of the man for that. Right? And, and the truth is, like, I don't know that I, like, can I keep going when it gets more discouraging? That's, that's a question I'm still trying to answer. Can I keep going when each step is scarier than the one I just took? That's what he did. That's why he's that guy. And that's what I need to start doing. Keep taking steps when I don't see the answer yet no matter how scary it gets. Why? Because I trust who? My ability to find it or God's ability to take me to it? My trust, hope, confidence is not in my ability to figure it out or my ability to, to find the... It's in God's ability to provide for me, to take care of me if I'm obedient. And if I'm going to be completely honest, that is what I struggle with. I know right from wrong. It's just if I do it the right way, I'm afraid that it won't work out right. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? And so sometimes I bail. Keep reading. Uh, verse 4. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther and we will worship there. That's an odd way to describe what's about to happen, isn't it? And, and, I will, and we will, me and the boy... You guys stay here with the donkey. We're going to grab the wood, and my son and I are going to go on top of that mountain, Mount Moriah, by the way, and, uh, and, and we're going to uh, we're, we're worship there. That's, 
That's what we're going. What, what if every act of sacrifice that you make in obedience to what God's putting in your heart is worship? What if he called it worship because for him to offer his son Isaac to God as a sacrifice to God was the greatest expression of his devotion to God? And there's nothing that would qualify more as worship than sacrifice out of devotion. That actually helps another verse in the Bible make sense to me. When Abraham looked at the idea of offering his son as a sacrifice to God as worship, it helps me wrap my head around what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Because in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, here's what the Apostle Paul wrote. Let me get to it. Romans 12, verse 1. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let your bodies be a living and holy what? Sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. A sacrifice that is holy, by the way, is what he finds, sacrifice, what he finds, what he finds acceptable. What does the last part of that verse say? This is truly the way to what? Worship isn't just singing a song before the preaching. Now, if singing the song before the preaching helps you set aside the distractions so you can focus on God, so that when God presents to you your next step of obedience, you gladly take that self step of sacrifice, then it's worship. But for us to show up at a weekend gathering in a building with a bunch of other Christians and call it church because we sang songs, listened to somebody else pray, and somebody else tell us what they were learning, but we walk out unchanged is not worship. That isn't what God's trying to do. He's not trying to put on a show every hour and see how many people will show up. What God is actually trying to do is call you into greater steps of risk based on faith that God will provide if you do, but you stay unchanged and stuck if you don't. That's what God's trying to do. He's not putting together religious services. He's trying to draw out of you a holy sacrifice that pleases him. So at the end of your life, he gets to say to you when you stop breathing, was that not an amazing ride? That's what God's trying to do. That's what church is about. It's not singing and listening to me talking. It's you obeying God, whatever crazy fool thing he puts in your heart to do. And you're doing it because you love him enough to trust him enough to obey. And then you get to become the masterpiece created for good works that he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them according to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. You don't and you stay a muddled mess of a painting. You do and you become this beautiful work of art. Painted by every stroke of obedience and faith and trust that God ever tried to put on the canvas with his brush. He has a part to play, and he can and will play it. But you have to let him hold the brush. And that's what God's doing with them. Back at it, verse 6. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders, while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to his dad and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where's the sheep for the burnt offering? 
Okay, now it gets uncomfortably awkward. <laughs> like Isaac's been along with this the whole way, right? And his dad's not caring. He's not a baby. He's like a, he's like a preteen. He's like, like a teenager. Like he's, he's an independent, like autonomous person. And he's walking with his dad and he goes, we got everything except for the most important thing, which is the sacrifice. How does Abraham respond to this? Verse 8, God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham answered, and they both kept on walking. God will provide. God will provide. God will provide. That's what Abraham had been saying to himself for three days straight. For three days straight. I don't know how he'll provide, but dang it, he's got to. 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 Because you're the kid that he said he would do all this stuff through, and he ain't going to lie to me. I trust him. I trust him so much, I'm going to obey him. I'm going to obey him to do stuff that's crazy because I absolutely trust God. That's why I will do this. The Bible actually gives us the reason why, what he was actually thinking in his head. If you've got your Bible, I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, here's what it says. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19 says, Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was so committed to keeping his word that God was going to bring him back to life again. That's what the Bible says. That like, he was so convinced. The Bible says that he was so convinced that God was going to keep his word that even if Isaac died, God would have to raise him from the dead, but God was going to keep his word and God was going to provide. That's how much confidence he had that God will take care of this. That I will keep going when keeping going doesn't make any sense. And I will keep risking when risking doesn't make sense. And I will be obedient and I will be generous and I will sacrifice beyond what I ever thought I could do. Any of those things. Why? Not because I'm a stud because I will obey, but because God will keep his word and he will provide. That's why I will do this. I will do this because God is good, even when life doesn't make sense. God will provide even when I go beyond what I thought my limits were. God will take care of this. My job is to do what he says. His job is to make it work. I know my job and I know his. And his job ain't my job. So I need to stop making decisions the way I've been making them. Because I've been acting like I'm the one who's got to figure everything out. And if I can't, then I don't obey. That's just what it comes down to. Back at it. God will provide his sheep. Verse 9, when they arrived at the place where God had told them to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Did he have to wrestle his son to do this, yes or no? No. Like his son was cooperating. As an independent, autonomous person who also had faith that God would provide. Homeboy had his daddy's faith. May I tell you something, fellas? And I'm sorry if this is uncomfortable for you, but according to a study that was done in Europe over the past 50 years, children whose dads own their faith are 20 times more likely to grow up and be people of faith than kids who only have a mom who owned her faith. I don't know why that is. It just is. They, the article goes on to talk about how they get their values from their mom, but they get their faith and worldview from their fathers. What would happen in the life of your kid, fellas, 
if your kids or future kids had faith like you do? Would that be good for them or bad for them? Because faith is caught. It's not taught. It's not what you've been telling them. It's what you've been showing them. Are you with me? And Abraham was the real stinking deal. Proof? Isaac gets up on the altar himself. Holy cow. The weight of the responsibility that my faith has, not just to me in my life, but to Garrett, Lauren, and Ryan. Bro, that moves me to want to man the stink up. And not just talk religion. Dang it, I want them to see their daddy lived it. That daddy served. That daddy gave. That daddy went. That daddy helped. That daddy showed up. That daddy actually walked what he talked. Because it's not just my faith that's being built. It's theirs. Through mine. Back at it. Verse 10. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. According to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, confident that even if God didn't stop him and he brought the knife into his son, that God, and he died, he was going to stand back and he was going to wait. And dang it, he was going to stay here for the rest of his life if that's what he took. But God had better raise this kid back to life again. Because there's no way in the world I'm going to obey God and he's going to let me down. There's no way. That's what God would do. So he raises the knife, 100% confident that as crazy as it sounds, somehow if I obey God, he'll provide. Here's what happens. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. And at that moment, the angel of the Lord called out to Abraham from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, yes, here am I. You know, that was the loudest. Here, here I am. Holy cow, that was so stinking close. <laughs> he raises that knife, and God goes, wait, okay, okay, I'm, I'm available. I'm available. Anything you want, right? <laughs> Holy cow, you've never seen a man more happy in his entire life. Am I right? Yes or no? Can you imagine the relief that just washed over him as he got to experience God providing for him in the moment? Like some of you guys have never experienced that because you've never put yourself so far out there because you were trusting God that he had to show up and rescue you. And because of that, you've missed out on some of the most amazing experiences God has intended for you. I mean, I, I, I don't like to use illustrations that makes me the good guy because I know that I'm not and I know what I struggle with. And you can talk to my wife or Garrett, Lauren, or Ryan. They'll be happy to tell you. But there have been times, like early on, when Grace Church was just getting started, and a church that was offering me a great salary, was 100% confident I was supposed to be their next pastor, called and offered me a job right after I had lost my other job, and we had mortgage due the next month, excuse me, the next week, and we had no money to pay for it, I had already lost my job. Now, I'm already in real estate school, so I'm not just sitting around praying in my butt, doing nothing. I'm grinding, I'm trying to make things happen. But we were desperate, and God needed to show up. But taking this job would provide relief for me financially, but I knew it would mean that I went back to Ur of the Chaldees. <clears throat> Sorry. So I keep making the phone calls, 
I'm still grinding. I'm still going to real estate school. I'm still doing what I can, right? Making things happen. Now I'm thinking, I will mow grass. I will deliver pizza. I am not too proud to provide for my family. I promise you that, right? I will do what I got to do. And I met with a pastor in uh, Rhode Island. And he said, Sean, we can't help your church out. I'm like, that's okay. Like, you know, I'm like, on the inside, I'm dying just a little bit. Like, you don't know that mortgage is due next week. <laughs> and he goes, I, our church can't help you out. And I'm like, all right, that's, that's fine. Can I ask you a favor? He said, what's that? I said, if I sent you an email every Friday with like one or two things to pray for, would you just pray for us before you deleted it? I don't even care if you read it. You hit delete, but don't delete it until you pray for us first. He said, absolutely. He says, tell you what, why don't you come back to my office? So I went back to his office. And he wrote me a personal check for $5,000. And he said, this isn't for your church. This is for you. Make sure you take care of your family with whatever you need. And I got to go home to a wife who was crying the night before. We're doing everything God wants us to do. Why are we having to go through this? Because there was another gear he wanted us to get into. So that I could keep becoming the man he always wanted me to be. And I'm telling you right now, you might feel the pressure. And you're being tempted. Maybe you started. Maybe you started giving to God generously. Maybe you started loving people who are unlovely. Maybe, maybe you, you, like, I don't know, like, what was your, you, you, maybe you broke up with the person that you were with because you knew they didn't share your faith. But now it's been so long and you're alone. And they still like you and they're still reaching out to you. And you're thinking about going back to it. Or you started obeying God with your resources, but now it's getting scary and, and like bills are starting to like, like, so like you're tempted to go back on it or you've been loving the person in the office who's unlovely and they're just driving you stinking nuts and they're not changing you're about to, like maybe, maybe you feel the pressure of what it's like to get right before that gear shifts into the new gear. And I'm telling you, if you are there because you are obeying God, he's about to click it into the next gear. You've got to keep pedaling. You've got to keep trusting. Because even if he dies, he'll bring it back to life again. He is doing something. And God will not bail on you because you got stuck obeying him. You know why? Because God provides. Finish the story. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. <laughs> That's the best instructions I have ever chosen to obey. Right there. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld me from me, even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up, and he saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. You know why it's important that it was caught by its thorns? Because you couldn't present a sacrifice to God that was blemished, cut, or bruised in any way. And if it was caught by its body, it would be bruised and blemished. It was caught by its horns, which meant that the body of the, 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 the ram was completely, un, it, was a, it was a holy and acceptable sacrifice. That's why it was important that it was caught by its horns and not by any other way. I just think it's a cool detail. In the thicket, so he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yaira, which means the Lord will provide. You know what he could have named it? He could have named it the place where I obeyed. Couldn't he have named it that? Yes or no? But you know what? His focus was never on his ability to obey God. It was always on God's ability to provide if he did. And when you get to the end of your life, if you get to live this blessed life and you get to hear Jesus say, was that not awesome? When you look back, it won't be your steps of obedience that will impress you. It will be the way that God provided for you 
when you did. That's what will move you. Because that moves you to keep doing it. When you keep seeing God step up. It was the place where God provided. 2,000 years later, by the way, on that exact same mountain, on that exact same mountain, the mountain where Abraham told his son that someday on this mountain God will provide himself a sacrifice, on that exact same mountain, and this is not a coincidence of history, unless you're a skeptic, the Romans offered Jesus as a sacrifice, as a payment for the life that every single one of us owe God. I just think it's cool. On that exact same mountain. This is not a story of Abraham's obedience to God, but God's faithfulness to him. And because Abraham trusted God enough to obey God, Isaac was saved. And truthfully, because of our faith, our trust in God, and our obedience to him, more people in New England will be saved. I don't think it's a coincidence that Grace Church is right smack dab between the number two and number four least religious cities in the entire country, Providence and Boston, respectively. And this church doesn't exist so that we can keep paying bills to sit in a comfortable, warm building. This church exists to give every one of our friends and neighbors who are spiritually disconnected from God one more chance to know and follow Him. And what's riding on your faith and obedience is not just your spiritual life, but the lives of every one of those that you love and care about that you've been praying for. And for some of those you haven't been praying for yet. See, I believe that God's trying to do something in us as a church family. All six states of New England are in the least religious states, excuse me, all six New England states are in the top 10 farthest from God. God is doing something. And it won't get done until each one of us individually, so that all of us can collectively start trusting God enough to obey God, doing crazy steps of obedience. And what will hold us back is our fear that he won't come through. And what we'll miss is the opportunity to be rescued by God and to keep naming places and times in our life as Jehovah Jireh. God provided again. Let me tell you the awesome story about the pastor in Rhode Island who provided mortgage for my family when he didn't even know I didn't have any more money. That's the kind of story you miss. You with me? This is the way God intended us to live. Full throttle, pedal all the way down. Anything he's asking us to do, we do because, not because we're awesome and obeying God, but because we trust that God is awesome at being God, at providing and taking care of us. Christianity is about God's provision for you. It's about God giving us everything we needed. It's about God giving us his very life. And your life is to be lived, demonstrating how willing you are to return the favor. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask everybody, if you would, please, to close your eyes. And I'm going to ask you to hold that thing in your hand again. And what I want to ask you to do, like whatever it is that defines who you are, whatever it is that you can't imagine your life without, whatever it would be scariest of you to let go of, what I'm asking you, nobody looking around, I'm asking you to open up your hands and raise them to God. God, I trust you with even this. 
even that. God, I'm going to stop worrying about my son who walked away from you. I'm going to stop worrying about my finances. I'm going to stop worrying about my health. I'm going to stop worrying about my family members who hurt me. I'm going to stop worrying about my boss who mistreats me. I'm going to stop. I'm going to do right, and I'm going to trust you. God, you will provide if I obey. God, I'm yours. And this is too. Whatever that is. God, I pray that you are pleased by the attitude of our hearts and the direction in which our lives are pointed right now. Help us, God, to keep taking baby steps toward becoming the person you always intended us to be because the consequences of staying the way they, we are right now is unthinkable. God, help me to get to another gear if that's what it takes. Show me other areas of my life where I have not given control to you so that, God, I will. Here I am. I am yours to direct. Not because I'm so awesome at obeying. God, I stink at it. You know I do. But because you are awesome enough to provide. Let your will be done in me. Help me to become the man you want me to be so that you can do through me what you want to do. That's our prayer. We ask this in the great name of Jesus, and we all pray and say together, amen.